Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. We spend a lot of time on our various platforms tracking how the media covers news events. We talk about some great coverage and some great reporting, and then also some not-so-great work by journalists. My guest today comes from the media world and is now writing about it in a new book. Steve Krakauer is a journalist who has worked at a number of major networks over the last two decades. He is now independent, and he has a new book out called Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Today, Steve and I go in-depth on where the media has gone awry over these last 10 or so years, its coverage of Trump, race, COVID, and a number of other issues. We talked today about why this has led to a lessening of trust in the media. In fact, the U.S. right now, among nearly 50 countries in the world, has the lowest amount of trust. Americans have the lowest amount of trust in their media institutions. Steve, for this book, has interviewed several dozen journalists at top institutions on what's wrong and how we can fix it. What's interesting, Steve and I have interacted a number of times through the years. We've taken some similar paths, initially working for national news outlets, now working in independent media. So we talk about those experiences today on this episode. We'll share some anecdotes, including some of mine from my time in the media that I know some of you will find very interesting. So if you're interested in the inner workings of the media and uh, what actually goes on, definitely take a listen to today's podcast. Before we get started here, a reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast on your app right now. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. Also, rate this podcast. It helps us grow. Appreciate all the great reviews we've gotten so far. So if you could take a moment to do that, greatly appreciate that. With that, here's our conversation taking you inside the media. It's so good to be welcoming Steve Krakauer uh, onto the podcast. He's a veteran journalist, has worked at CNN, Fox, NBC, The Blaze, uh, currently authors the Fourth Watch media newsletter and podcast. He also happens to be the executive producer of the Megyn Kelly Show podcast. You can also uh, hear it on the radio. We actually, I think, Steve, first interacted back in your days as a media reporter for TV Newser and Mediaite. Um, And then, of course, we would meet at CBS. So the new book is... Uh, titled Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. A very provocative title. And the first question I was thinking about as I started reading it, Steve, is how are you going to go about promoting this book on those media outlets? How has that been going for you so far? Yeah, it's definitely been challenging on the uh, to, to to get out there onto the media outlets that uh, you know maybe I was more critical of. You know, particularly places like a CNN or CBS, ABC, NBC. Um, you know, getting coverage, say in the New York Times or in the Washington Post. I would say those are some of the prime targets of the places that I was critical of. And while I have not been able to successfully get on those outlets to talk about the book, uh, I will say that there were representatives of pretty much all those outlets that were in the book. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of people yeah. on the record, um, including uh, Ali Velshi from MSNBC, reporters from the New York Times, Washington Post, Eric Wemple, um, and uh, and really, you know, throughout the industry. And so. In that sense, you know, I do think that there were there there are. I mean, look, the media, quote unquote, the media is gigantic. It's full of people that are doing great work, as well as people that I think are not doing the, the best work uh, anymore. And so it's complicated um, and it's nuanced. And I, I try to get at that in the book. Um, but but certainly in promoting it, uh, it has been a little bit more siloed than I would like because I, I would like to get it out there as much as possible. I will say one kind of way I tried to to go around that was by doing an interview with Brian Stelter on my podcast, Brian, formerly obviously of the New York Times and of CNN. Um, and so I wanted to get that perspective. I wanted someone to really kind of push me on, on uh, you know, someone who had a, a pretty different perspective, although I think we agreed in some areas. And so I kind of hit that that side of it from, from, uh, from that angle with Brian. It's so interesting because we in the media demand accountability and transparency from everybody. Um, and to a certain extent, depending on the publication or organization, you know, there are the, um, what were called in yesteryear ombudsmen, right. Um, where they're self-critical, but in, in recent years, um, there's a lot less of that. There's a lot less accountability. It's something you get into in the book, but before we get started here, you know, we refer to the media. In fact, your title says how the media got cozy. How do you describe the media? Cause as you noted, the media is a, is a very large thing. Yeah. In fact, I, I try to really 
come up with some definitions in the uh, the introduction of the book because yes, the media it was nice and concise for the title, but it doesn't really represent what I'm talking about. I, I think you know I, I often refer to the Acela media, uh, which is a term that I, I always thought I came up with, but actually someone else came up with before me, which is basically the media that's largely based in New York City and Washington D.C., um, where the Acela corridor, the train that goes from New York to D.C. and back, a lot of media members take that all the time. In fact, I did as well last week when I was doing interviews in New York and then went and did interviews in dc and so i was jumped on the acel it was the fastest way to get down I, there. I i took it back and forth myself i was in dc for a few days last week as well so right. i i know it well it's the it's the high speed well the high speed by american standards right. train that runs from boston to dc but what you're really talking about here is the the media that lives between dc and new york yes and it's a trip that you know a lot of them make as well as people in government and other sort of powerful positions um so i do think that that's one of the components here is the media that's largely based in those two hubs uh, i also talk about the corporate media which i do think is really a differentiation at this point from the more independent media corporate media that has lots of, let's say, interconnected issues with, you know, I mean, you look at something like a CNN, which now has got Warner Media, and then it's got Warner Brothers, and then it's got Discovery, and it's like, and things get complicated. So I think the corporate media can sum that up. Um, and then, you know, you've got different other definitions, legacy media, establishment media. Um, I, I think that there's, you know, one of the thing, the points that I think is, is worth noting, and I did actually note this in terms of the talking about the geographic bias that we see, is a place like Fox News, which I think, you know, is serving a different audience, in a lot of ways also is part of a, the same corporate media in some ways that that people might not associate it with because look it, it too is largely based in new york and dc it has lots of corporate interests they may be serving a different audience but ultimately i think it's a different sort of component than than what an independent media outlet is, is searching for and, and is trying to serve yeah i want to talk about fox in this conversation in fact I, I should note for the purposes of this conversation i spent the first five years of my career at fox news uh from about 04 to 09 different Fox than you could say than it is today, but uh, nonetheless unique in yeah. the way it approaches things and stories. But I want to begin with your story before we get into the story of the media, your media story, Steve. Uh, what brought you to the media? What Take me through your route through these various institutions and and what you learned through that. What What basically brought you to today? working in independent media and writing this book? Yeah, I was a real you know journalism nerd from the very beginning. Uh, my first job was working at my local town newspaper, the Westfield Leader in Westfield, New Jersey, covering local men's softball summer league games uh, and making $30 an article. Um, I did that when I was like 15, 16 years old. And I, I you know, was went to Syracuse, got a broadcast journalism degree. Um, and so I always knew I, I was very interested in the, in the journalism industry, worked at places like NBC, Fox News very briefly also. Um, I was an NBC page. Uh, and then I covered the media industry for a while uh, at places like TV Newser and Mediaite, uh, where I really kind of, you know, I was very much part of that media scene. I mean, you know, the media parties and the, you get to know everybody. Um, and then from we should yeah. we we should tell people. So TV Newser and Mediaite, these are literally websites devoted to every single interesting <laughs> semi-interesting, semi-notable thing happening on cable news, especially yeah. every day, all the time. And the parties you mentioned, literally, there's get-togethers several times a week. There's awards. We give each other awards, <laughs> something we do in the media. Right. And, uh, you know, you you tend to know, it, it was referred to at one point as the group of 500, the group of 1,000. There's literally just a few hundred people who work in these institutions who know each other very well. It is. It, it's real. There's a real coziness to it. Um, media, especially, man, I mean, it, the, the whole basis of it is really, it, it, you know, media stories became kind of part of the culture, I think, around the same time that media was starting. So it really kind of made sense. And, and, and it's only gotten that way even more so. I think media is so connected to politics and so connected culture now in a way that it really wasn't even necessarily when I was at places like TV News or so that that's done really well and it's become really synonymous with that. Um, but then I worked at CNN for for several years. I worked for Piers Morgan. I sort of worked on the behind the scenes on the executive side. Uh, and then I switched over. Some people would say I really like switched sides. I went to the blaze uh, working for Glenn Beck, which brought me down to Dallas where I've, I've lived ever since. I worked there for a few years and then I kind of was out of the media for a while um, and both out of it physically and out of it really kind of in the day-to-day -day editorial until about 2019 when I started a, a newsletter uh, called Fourth Watch covering the media industry and really kind of like an outsider perspective, but as someone who had been previously an insider 
And then from there is what is what came the the book because you know actually the, the person who is the editor of the book is someone who read Fourth Watch and approached me and said, "You ever think of writing a book?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I got this idea. I've kind of been throwing it around." He's like, "Yeah, not really interested in that one. But what if you just kind of made Fourth Watch into a book, uh, looking at the last seven years in the media and really kind of what went wrong, um, documenting how and why some of these problems existed and got worse, and uh, and that was the basis for it. So that's kind of what I've been working on in the last couple of years." So I was struck by the numbers. I mean, we've we've read a number of these these numbers recently uh, about trust, yeah, and where Americans stand when it comes to trust. I think the the numbers you cite in the book is that only one out of three Americans trust that the media and news they're getting. It was three quarters just fifty years ago. Three out of four Americans used to trust it. Now only one out of three, somewhere in the thirty early low thirty percent range. There it was uh, noting a different survey last summer that writers did globally. Uh, that surveyed 40-something different countries, and we were last place when it came to trust in news and media. And it's so interesting, Steve, I, I was on the CNN Morning Show November and was talking about this, and Don Lemon was pushing back on me, saying, well, you know, the reason they don't trust us is because the politicians call this fake news. And I'm like, Don, it's much more complicated than that. Steve, what did you discover when you when you dive into Americans and their lack of trust and this continuing kind of loss of trust in the media. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things that really are, are glaring and stand out. You know, the first one is that 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 33% or so number is the compilation of everyone across all ideologies. Um, but if you look at just the independent line, um, you know, take out the, the, you know, the right, which generally has a strong distrust of the media and the left, which generally has a, a more a bit more of a trust, the independent line has completely fallen off a cliff over the last five years. I mean, from 2017 to 2022, the it's dropped 50 percent um, to to. This know, is self-described low. independence. Yes. Americans who kind of say, I'm, I I don't affiliate with either side. I do my own thing. Right, right, and that and that number is 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 completely off a cliff. And in another poll that I saw fairly recently, I believe this was the um, the Gallup poll, um, the trust in just television news, the independent line, and the and the self-identified Republican line were identical at just eight percent having trust in television news. So this is this is a, a glaring issue that's that's come about from people that are either political independents and are very into politics, or I would say that line to me also says people that are not overly ideological one way or the other don't really anchor their lives around politics or around the cultural issues of the day. They just, when news happens, they want to get the news and they want to have it to them, you know, in, in a in a format that they can digest and they can move on with their lives and go outside and spend time with their families and friends. Um, that has changed fundamentally. And, and I do think that there's lots of factors for why that is, whether it's the business model has change, social media, uh, the rise of independent media, places like, uh, you know, Mo News and what you're doing, um, you know, are great alternatives for people now. And so the fact that there are alternatives that feel more trustworthy because they feel closer to you, they feel more connected to you, that has really been a challenge, I think, and something that I don't think there's been nearly enough introspection in the newsrooms and the sort of the corporate press in thinking about how do we lose the people and and how do we start to gain their trust back? Because this is an important thing. We we need a strong institutional press in addition to a strong independent press, but it, it begins with regaining that trust and, and deserving that trust of the public. It's hard to talk about the state of our media without talking about the state of the business. Yeah. You know, it's a for-profit enterprise in this country for the most part. Um, you know, save for a few nonprofit or, you know, the ProPublicas and the and the PBSs of, of the world. Um, how has the the business as it's evolved towards digital, as all these media institutions have been trying to figure out this new world, how has that impacted the way they're covering things? And subsequently, this this loss of trust. Yeah, I I, I give a couple of case studies in the book um, in Uncovered about places like ESPN, CNN, the New York Times, um, where these are institutions that really, for a very long time, you know, there'd be there'd be good years and there'd be down years, but for the most part, the the business model itself for decades was essentially steady. I mean, it was just there, it was almost untouchable. And then suddenly, I mean, even if everything that CNN did was perfectly, you know, al aligned with what the audience wanted, every single day, the traditional consumer of a CNN 
it would be changing, would be going away. And the, the business model is just is just naturally changing because people's consumption habits are changing. And so in that void where where all of a sudden you're you're the, the piece of the pie that you're trying to attract from a traditional means, I mean you have to try to find them through streaming or you have to find them through social. There, there are other avenues of doing it. But that core business model is changing and it really is causing, I, I would say, a lot of mistakes to get made because there's this panic that sets in. And in the panic, when you no longer feel strongly about being able to stand on, you know, we're making this decision because it's best for our business, when that, when that question starts to, uh, you know, get a little bit more hazy, then bad mistakes start to get made. Then all of a sudden, the uh, there, there's the pressure campaigns that can be asserted from internal and from external, th- they can start to win out. And so, so that's where I think a lot of what happened in more recent years, the way that social media can, can, can assert this pressure campaigns on these larger outlets that don't feel as steady in their business models anymore. Now, all of a sudden, they can start to, uh, to really go against their own best interests when it comes to the, the business itself. So when we're talking about this business model, we're talking for years, you know, especially the ESPNs, the CNNs, you mentioned the cable model. They're getting subscription fees from the from the um, big cable companies. You know, like when you pay your cable right. bill or if you still have cable, five dollars is going to ESPN, two dollars of that is going to CNN, et cetera, et cetera. And they're raking in billions sometimes off of this. Now, as we start to cut the cord, as the people age out, they're losing that money. And so what you're saying is, there's a sort of existential crisis in the newsroom. And so they feel that they have to be responsive to the to the whims of social media or Twitter, where, whereas in a previous era, they, they wouldn't have paid as much attention to that. I, I think we see that more and more. You know, I give the example with the, um, the Tom Cotton op-ed that was published in the New York Times in June of 2020. And it really, to me, was a seminal moment. I mean, the New York Times published a, a column, which I think you could say you disagree with, you agree with. It was something that, you know, was, was basically a Senator Tom Cotton calling for the, the use of of you know troops of of military in order to stop the riots that were coming out of the social justice protests after uh, George Floyd's was killed. Um, and sorry, just to reset. So this Republican senator Tom Cotton, Arkansas, yeah. writes an opinion piece, and these are pieces that have been written for decades. Uh, you know, like running a piece from a U.S. senator with an opinion in the New York Times, something that's probably been done thousands of times over the last century. Exactly. I mean, this is something that Tom Cotton himself had done two times previously, had written columns for the New York Times about other other subjects. And so he writes this one. And in the heat of the moment, I mean, you have to, you know, I try to set the scene in chapter 10 of the book. I mean, we're in the height of the pandemic. All of the New York Times newsroom are essentially at home, spending a lot of time on Slack, a lot of time, uh, you know, on Zoom meetings, a lot of time on Twitter, not getting outside much and all this. And, and it's also a very real, um, you know, the, 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 just this, this, kind of general feeling of uneasiness that was in the country at this time. And he writes this column and, and it, there's an uproar in the Slack channels internally. And then it's spilling out on Zoom meetings, which I, which I detail um, in, in the book. And, and then it comes out publicly where there's this campaign of, of staffers from, from you know, the lower level in, in some cases who say that publishing this column puts the lives of our colleagues in danger. And it was picked up by activists, and that was able to really assert massive pressure on the bosses. The uh, editor of the opinion section, James Bennett, was forced out because of it. In fact, they actually really, almost as a result, changed the name of op-eds in the New York Times to guest essays. Like, you know, these are just these are just guests here. You know, this is not a they're not part of uh, part of the New York Times, of course. So. And then I, I would say it had a massive effect on just chilling what sort of speech was allowed to be published in the New York Times. And now apparently a senator, you know, publishing something that was maybe people disagree with, controversial even, uh, no longer really welcome there. So so that I don't think would have happened in the olden days. And I mean, the olden days, like 10, 15 years ago. But because of the way it could spill out publicly, and then the pressure that these lower level staffers were able to galvanize and force the bosses to do, that shows that that even at the New York Times, you know, really the bastion, you know, the of, of journalism. I mean, this is like the top of the top. This can happen. We should note, both of us who've worked in in national television, when you wake up in the morning and you walk into work, even at Fox, but CNN, ABC, CBS, one of the first places you turn to to make your news decisions is the New York Times. Yeah, the decisions that they're making at that newspaper, the the opinion pieces they're publishing. Uh, at at one moment in history, the staff editorials, what the New York Times opinion staff 
uh, believed about something was hugely consequential for the rest of the media. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's still, you know, in, in many ways has that, has that standing. Um, you know, I, I think about, I mean, look, New York times is, is one of the top and, and CNN, like from a digital perspective is one of the top, but there's a reason why we think about places like the New York times and CNN, and we put so much emphasis on what's happening in those outlets. And I think it is because at the core, I think all of us really want a, 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 a place to go that can be the news. You know, maybe it's a little boring, maybe it's a little crusty, but it's like the news. You know, this is, I, I always made a joke when I was at CNN, there was a, a store in Atlanta, which was like the CNN store. You could buy hats and you could buy t-shirts and stuff. And I was always like, who is buying a CNN hat? Like it, it, it just was not really the place. You're not really like, I love CNN. But that, of course, changed during the Trump era because I think the, the business model sort of changed and the direction sort of changed. But there was real value to not being like rah-rah CNN, but being, I trust this place. They're, they may not be the most exciting place in the world, but I could go there and I could get the news from them. CNN, New York Times, they had real value. And I think that they, can, they still can, but that's really what we've lost, I think, in the last seven years in particular. Yeah. And so going back into the Tom Cotton situation, you interviewed several Times staffers. Yeah. What did they tell you uh, are the lessons the newspapers learned and, and how that has uh, what is it? Just over, just just under three years now since that. Um, how that's changed the publication? Well, I, I would say this. First of all, I think that you know pl- people I talked to, like Sean McCreish, who was uh, an a, an opinion staffer at the time, now is at New York Magazine. Really, you know, laid bare exactly kind of what was going on in those Zoom meetings. Um, and and I, I I should say, you know, everyone who's quoted in the book is on the record. Um, it's really important to me to to get people to put their names to what they're saying. I think it's a really bad practice when no anonymous sources in this book. Steve. N- no anonymous sources, other than um, there was one uh, email that I had that I that I ended up quoting, but it was from before I started writing the. Book. But every I have twenty six interviews for the book um, specifically, everyone's on the record um, and gives their name. Uh, in fact, in the audio book, you could hear them all as well say the um, what what their quotes are. So um, Sean, you know, put his name to it and ex- and explained kind of the the fallout from it and the way that the, the, there was real fear and and also how the bosses thought this was maybe like a one off. You know, this is just this is just this crazy time. We'll just get through this. Yes, it's not it's not great, but we'll just move on. And it really wasn't that that case. You know, in fact. Ben Smith, who was at the New York Times uh, at the time, he was the media columnist, now he's at Semaphore, told me that he really thinks that this left a lasting mark on the legacy of the Times because of the way it seemed they really caved to this pressure and didn't stand by their opinion editor in a way that they really, really should have. So I do think that that happened. Now, I will also say it's worth noting we bring we fast forward to more recently, and the New York Times is under fire again from activists, including from people within their their own newsroom, about their coverage of trans issues more recently. And um, they're they've had some, I would say, pretty objective news articles regarding all sorts of um, the, the uh, storylines re- regarding uh, trans issues in America today. And they got attacked by it, and 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 they they stood strong. They said this is our reporting, and in fact. You staffers who signed this letter, you're not allowed to do that. That that looks like activism. Our journalists are not allowed to do that. So it was a bit of a reversal. I, I wonder how much they'll they'll continue to sustain that. But I do think that that's a move in the right direction to say, you know, this is journalism. You know, this is what we do. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there: noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do. But you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl and Branch. We have Bowl and Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. 
that promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. So we talked a bit about the business model, a bit of the, about the times here. I want to go back to 2016 because it's hard, and you've mentioned this a lot in the book, it's hard to talk about the state of the media today without talking about Trump right. and the impact he had, um, uh, his presence, his victory. How did he change what was going on? Did he change things or did he just expose problems that already existed? What did you uncover here as you as you uh, delved into this, as you interviewed folks? about the the lasting impact of Trump. Yeah, I, I do think that it didn't start with Trump. I mean, I, I think that's the first thing. I lay out in chapter one of Uncovered the the ways that I, I believe the Obama administration really worked to, to chill uh, journalistic freedom in this country by using the Espionage Act more than any other administration combined to sort of criminalize the act of journalism going after. Wait, t- yeah. talk about that because I don't think that's talked about enough. What did the Obama administration do when it came to uh, a couple of those journalists? What What is the Espionage Act and how did they use it? Yeah, so essentially the Department of Justice would use this very sort of obscure, uh, uh, you know, Act, uh, the Espionage Act, to uh, to go after journalists for essentially like revealing secrets. So they would go after sources or journalists for, to reveal their sources when they said that it was it was you know against national security in some way. And and this is the job of journalism. I mean, it, it's one thing if you're you know putting things out there that are untrue or that they're but you know the the but by by invoking this, you essentially can criminalize journalism. Journalists can go to jail. Journalism sources can go to jail. We saw this one time during the Trump administration with Reality Winner uh, was one of these people who who actually you know was prosecuted under under this. Um, but it happened more times under Obama than anyone else. So these are journalists coming up, you know, revealing a new thing about the Justice Department, a new thing about the Defense Department. I have some anonymous sources and. In this case, the Obama administration going after those journalists saying, reveal your sources. Yeah. And in fact, you know, we saw what happened with Glenn Greenwald and the Edward Snowden story, um, which, you know, he is someone who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting um, using the Edward Snowden documents about what we learned about the surveillance state. And he truly had to avoid coming to America because uh, it seemed that he would be prosecuted uh, if he did. And, and that was, you know, obviously Edward Snowden also is, is you know, under fear of being prosecuted if he returns to America. Um, for leaking these documents to, to journalists, so so that was what what happened, kind of in the run up to it. In fact, James Risen, uh, who was a New York Times writer um, and is someone who also was kind of a victim of this during the Obama years, wrote just as Trump went into office that if Donald Trump targets journalists, blame Obama, and that was like a warning shot. And I think, to be honest, I would also say blame the journalists themselves because you know journalists didn't really push back against this. There was a general. You know uh, whether you want to say a subservience to, to Obama or just Obama's just our friend. Him. Yeah, he seems like a he's nice the, guy. He's, he's our friend. Personable, he's right? A nice guy. Right. Yeah. And so, so we didn't get pushed back to it. And I think, in some ways, the certainly the rhetoric was amped up under the Trump administration. The action, maybe not as much. Uh, although we did, you know, work with like pulling press passes and all the enemy, enemy of the people stuff and the fake news. So I think that it kind of ramped up during Trump. So, so I do think that that is a precursor to it. But the other thing I would say is like, how did this happen with Trump? I think part of it, because I, I, I'm someone who like was a fan of the Celebrity Apprentice. Like I, I, I used to watch it, like you know, and I watched Piers Morgan win Celebrity Apprentice. You know, to, to me, Donald Trump was the guy who was deciding whether Lil John or Meatloaf ran a pizza shop better. And so, how is this person now the dictator who we're all scared of and is going to destroy democracy? It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, but I think what happened is there, there was legitimately some people in these newsrooms who believed that Donald Trump was his existential threat to the country and to democracy. And I think still believe that as he runs again. But if you really believe that, I don't believe that. But if you did, then my sense is you should double down on your editorial standards. That's when you say, okay, we we have to convince the public of this, of this dire threat. So we have the only way we're going to do that is to convince the most people by by being as journalistically sound as we can. But instead it went the other direction. I think that's really the core of this, is that that instead the guardrails came off and said, you know, we have to meet this threat by essentially abandoning what we believed and what the way our practices were before so that we can, you know, it's a special time calls from special circumstances, right? And that was really just disastrous for the, the trust in the public had in these institutions that previously were focused more on objectivity. So give me an example of that. So when you talk about lessening standards, so basically 
in the newsroom as, as opposed to doubling down on standards, they're loosening standards. So what does that mean day to day in terms of, I mean, did that change how they were sourcing things? So I, I think that, yes, I mean, it, in like the literal sense, there was, uh, for example, you know, stories that were previously, you know, had to get two sources, you know, now you only need one, um, or a source that, uh, uh, you know, was was a little bit shaky, now we just go with it, right? And I think we saw this a lot with a lot of the Russiagate stories, Mueller reporting, um, you know, real loosely reported stories that uh, that were, you know, ultimately wrong. Um, and, you know, I, I, I not all of this was like this giant conspiracy. I mean, I write about in the book um, one just small example of like a CNN story that I just think it kind of illustrates like the the loosening of these, just almost like a general laziness that can't come come about. So there, there was a, during the, the January 6th coverage, um, there was a story about Ted Lieu, Congressman Ted Lieu, who's like one of the, you know, the favorites of DC green rooms. Um, and it said that you know, during the, the riot of January 6th, he was in his office, he grabbed a crowbar and he went out into the hallway. And, uh, and, you know, like, wow, I'm trying to picture this, like Ted Lou's like, you know, go to, I don't know, going to attack some, some rioters with his crowbar. Well, a few hours later, this quadruple byline story, which clearly has been seen by editors also is changed to Ted Lou grabbed a pro bar energy bar and went into the hallway. It's like, okay, well, it makes a little bit more sense, but you know, it's just a small thing to say, I, maybe just, there should be some step back and say these people that, you know, it, it's that this era where there's just a general looseness that comes about because it's in the service of fighting potentially a, a, you know, this, this threat that you envision that it can just lead to sloppiness and laziness and incompetence. And it, and it, and it, and it really, you know, hurts the, hurts the finished product. Um, and I think we've only seen that more and more, especially even since Trump's gone. I mean, I think that the, what we've seen since then is when it comes to COVID or other stories, uh, a, uh, and a sense of trying to, limit the amount of information that gets out there for fear of it potentially being used in a certain way under the guise of spreading misinformation or or even just, yeah, I mean, even just potentially getting information that people might misinterpret in a way that we don't want them to. So we have to kind of clamp down on that. That's not how journalism used to be done. That's not the curiosity that the, that the press should have. The, the journalists would push back, many journalists would push back saying Trump had an unprecedented lo- loose relationship with the facts in terms of how he approached things, things he said, things he was trying to do. And so it really was democracy under the attack. And that was only reinforced by what was seen January 6th, et cetera, Steve. You know, what would you say to, to that? And I'm, I imagine you would have heard that from Brian Stelter and, and others. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that, that there was quite a lot of rhetoric that Donald Trump was doing that I would completely disagree with, I think was bad. I think it, it, it did, you know, I think it did hurt the, the discourse in the country by, by making everything, you know, this, this fight between the Trump administration and the media. And I think he totally ate that up. I think it was, it was good for business when it came to the Trump brand, um, was that to be in this fight with the media. Um, I don't necessarily connect that to, to what happened on January 6th. I think January 6th was, was you know, horrible. I, I told Brian, bad, bad riot, you know, not, you know, not very, very bad, but I don't think that necessarily we can draw a straight line in that way to how we dealt with the press or or how we dealt with just the overall rhetoric of the country. And I also think that I've been disappointed that, you know, as, as much coverage as we've gotten about January 6th, we haven't gotten a broad swath of coverage that I think we, we could use when it comes to security failures, when it comes to, you know, who planted the bombs outside the RNC and the DNC. I mean, just, just to, to name a couple, why, why is we, why are we so focused on some and not the others? And I, and I should say, and this is another reason just to point out that, you know, the press is not all one thing, not all bad, not all good. Thanks to NBC and some of the great reporting that they've done, uh, the committee them, itself, the January 6th committee was really split on, on what to do in their final report. And it ultimately was very much only about Trump, whereas there were people yeah. inside who thought it should be much more about the security failures, things that they had uncovered and ultimately didn't really put in that final report in a, in a, in a major way. I think it was like in the you know footnotes at the end. Um, whereas rather than giving a full picture of what the committee did, they focused more on the political side of it, which was you know just only one component of what they really put out there. Yeah, something I, I would regularly try to remind folks of is that the January 6th committee, seven Democrats, two Republicans, those two Republicans, uh, very critical of Trump, Kinzinger and Cheney. Right. Um, they were specific in terms of 
the tape they released. They had a certain rollout. You know, they they had their own agenda, and they're you know, and and ultimately, unfortunately, in these partisan times, even with an investigation like that, that ideally would have been bipartisan, but for a whole variety of factors, wasn't. We don't get the full picture, and now you know we're hearing about Speaker McCarthy handing the videotapes over to Tucker Carlson, and like now you're going to hear a different perspective. And ultimately, we we have this issue of the media isn't helping us figure out what the truth is, yeah. which is the basic thing, right? What are the basic facts? What is happening in our country every day? And and that's really I I hope now as as Republicans control Congress. And we're getting all these hearings now, right? We're going to get the Hunter Biden laptop hearings. We're going to get the lab leak, you know, COVID hearings, um, which I think are good. I think it's important. Um, and of course, those hearings are not going to be in the committee sense that it was with January 6th. They will have Democrats on those committees. But I hope we see more cooperation between both sides on these on these bigger issues. Maybe the Hunter Biden laptop, we're not. But I do think like COVID. Here's a- which which Washington are you I know. are you watching right now, Steve? I, know. I mean, yeah. we're not going to see it, right? It's, we're we're going to just get, <laughs> I could predict how it's all going to go, um, which is unfortunate. But, but that's also why these stories like the Hunter Biden laptop, which I start uncovered with uh, that story, um, the, you know, with the lab leak, theory. That was another case study that I write about. You know, at the very least, I think as a public, we can, you know, I try in the book to like lay out all the cards on the table and say, you know, here's, here's what happened. Here's, you know, what, like how the media covered this in this way and why. Um, and, I, you know, we don't know the truth. I mean, Josh Rogan is someone I interview quite a bit in the book. He's from the Washington Post, really trustworthy. We've, we've had him on this podcast. We had him on last month. Excellent. I mean, Josh is great. And and Josh is someone who can call it like he, like he sees it. And, you know, from the very beginning, Josh is like, look, you know, anyone who would say that it's either a lab leak or either a wet market for how COVID started is telling it to you wrong. Like it could be either. And anyone who's not intellectually honest to say it could be either, you shouldn't trust them. And so that eliminates pretty much everyone. I mean, there's not a lot of people who are not who are willing to say even today, sure, I would say it looks more like a lab leak than into a, to the market. And Dr. Fauci would say it differently. But you got to be open-minded that it could be either one. And and we didn't get that. And we didn't get that for a lot of reasons. And that's that also contributes to this just distrust. I, I think one of the big problems with the press is they're so scared to look like they don't know the answer. And with COVID, mm. who, who knew the answer? None of us knew the answer. And they're, and they're worried about getting it wrong or getting it seeming like they're kind of wishy-washy. Well, let, take that. You know, the, the public would have so much more appreciation if you were just honest about what we know and what we don't know. There's something to, I mean... They breed us that way in the national news organizations. You must convey certainty. Right. You must come here for tr- the truth, real news. We'll tell it to you. When, in fact, in this era, when there's so much uncertainty, the people might appreciate being like, you know what? I'm going to come on the news to say tonight. We don't know. Right. And how rare is that? Right. I know. Where are you hearing that? I know. And uh, and and I and that's also why I mean I spend so much time on COVID in the book because I, I just think everything you know masks lockdowns vaccines you could go you go down the list I mean none of these are black and white topics and and anyone yeah. from either side which you you'll probably going to get one story from Fox News and one story from CNN and MSNBC and they're both not going to be the true right one's on Team Ivermectin yeah. and one is like that's the silliest thing I've ever heard that's horse tranquilizer exactly right and 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 that was what was actually you know one of the things I. I, I think is really interesting was that moment that Sanjay Gupta went on Joe Rogan's podcast. It was this great moment of kind of this, I call it like the consensus versus the counter consensus coming together. And you and you watch that or you listen to the, the podcast and it's like a great conversation for like three hours. They go through all these topics and their disagreement. You know, I think Joe probably scored a few more points than Sanjay Gupta, but I think it was close. You know, I think it was interesting. And then you get Sanjay Gupta goes back on CNN, you know, his home turf, and he essentially mischaracterizes Joe Rogan's whole arguments and, and even just how the conversation went itself. So that's what's disappointing about it is we need to be able to get out of like the bubbles, have hard conversations, have, you know, intellectually honest conversations. Don't feel like we're under this pressure of getting yelled at, which I think, you know, is such a such a Twitter uh, instinct these days of like 50 people yell at you on Twitter can feel like the, the, the world's coming to an end. Um, that That's not the truth. That's not reality. And so so if we can get out of these and actually have these conversations, I, I think that that is how we get back to trust, at least in even independent sources. You know, what's so interesting is um, we can talk COVID, we can talk Hunter Biden. And in a, both those cases, I was trying to link it. And I was like, well, the media starts with the best of intentions, right? You, and in some cases you call it paternalism, but like the media is like, listen, the Hunter Biden lesson from 2016 is the Russians were messing with stuff. We're going to take a pause here, at least initially on this story and ensure that it's accurate. But then 
it's taken too far. Explain explain what the media did that was right there and then where it sort of went awry. Yeah, I, I think you can explain that the New York Post story initially looks, a li- the, the sourcing looks very, you know, shaky. Uh, I mean, you've got Rudy Giuliani and you've got the semi-blind repair shop guy and it looks a little bit weird. It's a couple of weeks before an election. Yeah, that, which is yeah. a huge factor to it, of course. Um, and so, so I think you can kind of tell that story. And you can also potentially tell the story of all these very high level intel agency guys, the James Clappers and the and, you know, John Brennan's of the world who are essentially contributor, paid contributors in some cases to these news networks that are signing this letter and saying it has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. You can tell that story. Um, but you can tell the full picture of it. You can tell potentially what's on, what, why is it newsworthy if it is a true laptop? So I, I think you can tell it in a way instead of what we got, which was by and large, the media treating this like it was completely toxic. And obviously social media, Twitter in particular was, you know, did unprecedented suppression of this story, made it so that link to the article could not be shared publicly or even privately in direct messages. You had journalists share the story and just be like, hmm, this looks, I don't know about the sourcing on this one. And they got yelled at by their own colleagues. How dare you link to that story? They had to delete it and apologize for linking to it. Um, it, it was just complete overreach. And, and, you know, as we, as we obviously we know now, for the most part, that story was very much accurate. And, and so because of that, you know, it, it's really a black eye on the industry. Um, yes, I think it was right before an election. Yes, you know, potentially it could have been part of the, you know, October surprise that the Trump administration had planned all along. Who knows? But at the very least, it's newsworthy. And even if you want to sort of couch it as we don't know if it's true, cover the story, you know, tell the story and don't ignore right. it. And T- it like talk about Hunter's links, talk about whatever, yeah. say, you know, based on the Senate Intel investigation, does not appear that Joe Biden did anything with it, but his son was involved in it. But this laptop, you know, the, this repair shop owner, he looks sort of sketchy. Right. Um, and it comes from political operatives, et cetera. And just do what you do as journalists, which is report the facts. Yeah. This is what it is. You know, there was the motto at Fox for years when I was there, we report, you decide, right? Yeah. Um, Taken at its core, if you're actually doing that, that, I think, is what we've discovered about people. Then there's COVID, right? And whether it was like, you don't need masks because, again, oh my God, the hospitals don't have masks. So like, tell people they don't need masks <laughs> right. until they really need masks. And then uh, the masks are really important. Even outdoors, we're going to shame you, shame you, shame you. Wait, the Black Lives Matter protests are happening and everyone's outside. Masks, not that important outside. What happens during COVID? What like what happened? I, I think it started with, as you talk about kind of the best in, best of intentions, right? I, I think that people were legitimately freaked out about a legitimately freaking, you know, freaked out sort of event. I mean, it, it was a once yeah. in, a, in a generation pandemic um, that we were not prepared for. And a lot of mistakes were made across every sector, including the media, but but certainly not only the media. And so, so I think that we start with a place of like panic overall. Um, and, and so, you know, in that panic, bad decisions get made. But but I also think, you know, I write about geographic bias as a problem in the press. We talk about the Acela media and everything. But when, especially when you're, you're you know, stuck in your own little apartment um, in, in, you know, New York and DC, you're, you're definitely not getting out in there. And, and you also, we saw such huge difference in the way that not only were the policies of like the red states and the blue states different, but the perceptions of the policies. You know, I, I, I write about in the book and I, and this I, the graphic always stays with me on Meet the Press. This was in, I believe it was like later in, in 2020, like, like August or September of 2020. And it said, these are the states essentially where masks are banned in schools. And I, and Texas was one of them. I live in Texas and I know that masks were never banned in school. I mean, there are still to this day at my kid's school where he's a first grader, there are kids who wear masks. Mask mandates were briefly banned in schools. And then so so kids could make, or parents could make the decision about what they wanted for their kid to be, you know, to really get in the weeds. Dallas actually, you know, went against the mask mandate ban. So they had the mask. Right, mandate. right. In some red states, yeah. you had bluish cities that were. Yes, yeah, yeah. so you had that also. But, yeah. but, at the, but, but I really believe that whether, how many layers of checks did this graphic go through where people really believed that masks were not allowed to be worn in schools in Texas. And that just comes from this, this real disconnect. With the public, and and I think you know, with when it came to COVID policies, it became this: what team you're on is essentially what policy you should endorse, 
And, you know, like I said, it's, there, it's a lot more complicated than that, a lot more nuanced than that. Um, but, but that, that sort of out of touch coverage, I just think made the COVID coverage overall so much worse. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of anecdotes for my time, uh, at various networks. I mean, I remember being at CBS in the fall of 2016 and, you know, I grew up in Northern suburbs of Chicago. My dad was a cabinet maker and then he sold, uh, uh, auto tools. He sold a whole bunch of uh, automotive tools. And I remember visiting home a couple months before the election in 2016 and did like a tool run with him to a couple of mechanic shops. And people who typically would not be voting red were like, I'm voting for Trump. I'm not Clinton. And I remember coming back to the newsroom because it was kind of taken for granted that like, there's no way, there's no way Trump's right. Like, how could he? And, you know, and we pride ourselves on, like, we have coverage across the country and we go on these trips and we go to diners. You know, right. if you watch cable news, Helicopter in, it's yeah. an election. <laughs> First of all, I don't know who goes to diners, but like people that will always visit a diner. It's like a good visual. We'll find people. Um, and that's where we get our check of the temperature. I remember coming back to the newsroom and I'm like, guys, I don't think there's even the city of Chicago, very blue place. There's, there's people moving towards Trump. Something is going on here. I don't know that we're effectively capturing it. And even election day, like there are people in the newsroom who are like, all right, how quickly can we call this thing for Hillary? And then just the utter shock right. of the place. And these are institutions, multi-billion dollar media companies with reporters across the country. Has, have things changed? I mean, we're sitting yeah. here now going the, looking at the 2024 election, Steve. Well, it's so, yeah, I, I think maybe a little bit has changed in the sense of, you know, you can believe the unbelievable now um, because, yeah, I, I don't think any, <laughs> it's such an interesting story. I don't think you could be as shocked as, as the average journalist was in November of 2016. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I wait, Steve, Steve, I, I want to tell you this, this is great. So the results are coming in election night. Uh, wait, wh where were you on election night, 2016? I was, uh, I was at home, you know, I'm, I was out of the industry. I just was kind of like, okay. uh, you know, I, I was someone who I had written a column earlier in, the, in that year that was basically like, I think Trump can win. And in fact, I actually talked to a reporter um, who wanted to talk to me about Trump TV. She said, oh, you know, you think Trump, this was before the election, uh, media reporter, you know, you think Trump TV is going to work? And I was like, well, I mean, he could also win and then he won't be starting a TV network. And she's like, no, yeah. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it's just after 11 o'clock. The results are not going. I mean, there's sort of a, a famous Dave Chappelle SNL sketch that sort of captures the watch yeah. parties from that night. I'm in the CBS News control room, you know, uh, working on our coverage. And like you see on set reporters and anchors starting to get like, oh my, what's going on here? Like genuinely concerned. At one point, executives walked out to the floor of the studio to be like, guys, half the country is really happy. And this is a freaking funeral right now. Like, <laughs> can you do, can you like put on your journalism hats a little bit? There were people in the newsroom off air crying about what was going on. Amazing. That's what was happening, at least inside one newsroom on election night, 2016. Um, I'm sure that's so, that's so fascinating. I'm sure it was happening in a lot of newsrooms. Um, you know, I, yeah. I tell the story, I talked to Selena Zito for the book, uh, who is, you know, really was one of the few, I think, reporters um, who was writing at the time for um, a variety of outlets, but, but really saw the phenomenon coming um, because she was out in the, you know, in the country talking to people. And um, she describes how she was called in almost immediately after the election by Jeff Zucker at CNN and hired essentially on the spot said, you know, we missed this. Um, you know, you can be someone who can help us. And she talks about, you know, she tells me about how she would brought in for like a town hall uh, meeting where she would, you know, she talked about what her coverage and, and uh, what she saw out in the country. So there was this brief moment of introspection, I think, right after the 2016 election. Um, and she describes how she would go on the air and they would go from saying, what do the people think? What do the Trump voters think? To why do they think this? Why would they think this? And she's like, you know, I don't know. I'm just a reporter. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reporting back to you. And then by the end of 2017, she was off the air completely. She was sidelined for the duration of her contract through 2020, never saw the air again. Um, so I do think, yeah, it, it turned out, I think, at some point where the fight that Trump, you know, brought on with the media became even more so... More, even more than just about Trump and the administration, about Trump voters. And I think that's really kind of where the media have lost its way completely is, is turning against the people that put him in office, which are, as you talk about, a large portion of the country. I mean, you know, close to half the country that, that did that. And so, so that, that's where it went from the introspection to almost the backlash against it, the disdain uh, and the division of, of the people that are in there. Because I, like you said, you talk to people, I mean, I, I, I have, you know, friends of mine, um, you know, I, I think if you, if you're, in these parts of the country, you find people who are, you know, gay and married and Trump supporters and, you know, like 
Democrats who shoot guns every day and big Second Amendment fans. I mean, just people are complicated, you know, very messy, not easily defined by cable news punditry. Um, and that's that's, I think, what gets missed. Well, and we saw it again in midterms, right? Yeah. In the most recent midterms, where Republicans just squeaked by for the House, Democrats gained a seat in the Senate. Um, you know, there wasn't the red wave no. that we th- because because things were complicated. What what people were voting and the candidates they were voting on in Arizona were very different than Florida. We're definitely different. You know, we saw a red wave in New York State, right? right? Um, was and and the media likes easy narratives, and I wanted to talk about this with you, yeah. Steve. Fauci's a saint. DeSantis. <laughs> is evil, right? Um, Governor Cuomo is great until he's not. Yep. There is so little ability to convey gray and convey nuance. What is that about? I know. And it's one of the things that's, that really most frustrates me because you would think that the, the, the largest media organizations are the ones that should tell the most complicated stories in the best way, right? They're, they're the ones that have the resources and the time and the staffing to really pour in and do the, the work that it takes to tell complicated stories. But instead, often that's relegated, the, to, to tell complicated stories is often relegated to the more of the independent independent press, you know, what's happening on Substack or through podcasts or through Mo News. Right, like uh, B- uh, Barry Weiss's, Barry yeah. Weiss's startup, you know? Yeah, exactly. Barry Weiss, Matt Taibbi, you know, Glenn Greenwald, these are all people who were in the corporate press uh, and I don't think really changed fundamentally, but the, the industry changed and now they're on the outside. Um, but they're still doing the work that they were always doing. And 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 I wonder, I mean, why is it that when when something happens, it's like, you know, the everyone just scurries. Everyone in the corporate press just goes and scurries in that direction, runs and covers it like a massive amount, and then just moves on to the next thing. All the easiest stuff gets the most coverage and the hardest stuff gets the least coverage. And and who's worse for it is the audience um, who wants to find places where they can understand what's going on. And when you have a place that has the resources to do it, put some resources towards things that are complicated and not easy to tell in a three-minute, five-minute hit. Right. And people are people are complicated. Yeah. People have positives and negatives. People make good decisions and bad decisions. As we're talking about this, you know, the New York Times definitely, you know, uh, we can we can take issue with a number of things they've done, but they also are a home to some reporting that you're not seeing anywhere else. Yes. Some great reporting. And that's important, I think, Steve, to discuss here, especially as we talk about trust in media. So I, I don't want people to listen to this and come away with me like, oh, my God, everything is terrible and there's no one to trust here. There are good journalists doing good work out there, yes? Yes. I mean, in fact, I, I say some of them in the book when it comes to COVID. I mean, we mentioned Josh Rogan so far at the Washington Post. I would say David Leonhard at the New York Times, Nate Silver at ABC. I mean, just some of these people who are mainstream reporters who I think did some of the best, most nuanced, most like, you know, rational COVID coverage and reporting that we saw um, really became trusted voices. And to be honest, they kind of got backlash for it. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the heat of the moment, even though they were all essentially proven right by their by their reporting, um, and again, just reporting, not opinion, but their reporting, um, they really yeah. took heat, and it, it, it took something to go against the grain, to go against the consensus in those moments, talking about things like lockdowns or masks or or other other topics that were a little bit well, more complicated. Well, I mean, Rogan's reporting, uh, especially in light of the last couple of weeks, Steve, uh, in regards to the Wuhan lab. I mean, I remember his reporting in the Washington Post very early on in the spring of 2020, where he was one, it was one of the only mainstream media outlets that was seriously, his coverage, seriously looking into the Wuhan lab. It was one of the few. I mean, I, I think it was in April 2020, he published the first story. And it was like, I mean, it, at that point, it really was, uh, you know, it, it, it took a lot. And I talked to Josh, you know, he later on wrote a book about um, China, uh, which is a great book. And he published an excerpt in Politico from this about kind of the Wuhan cables that he wrote about. And it was banned from Facebook. It got taken down, his, his excerpt in Politico. And he said, wait a second, he talked, he, call, he called his friends at Facebook, said, hey, we you know what's going on here. And they, they put it back on and then they banned it again and they put it back on. And it kind of got him thinking. This look, I'm a mainstream reporter. You know, I'm I'm doing actual journalism. I have the Washington Post masthead above yes. me. Yes, I mean, I can also have call my friends at Facebook and see what's going on. What about the average person who doesn't have that kind of contact? You can see how really you know the reverberations of censorship can be for the average American. Uh, you know, and and for for journalism outlets who don't want to cross these censors, just just avoid these things entirely. So what do you say to a critic out there? And I'm, I imagine you've heard from, you know, some people in the mainstream media, Steve, this is just sour grapes. You know, you're just one of those. 
And, and, and you know, I, I remember a few of these when in my Fox News days, like former CBS reporters, whoever, like there's a guy named Bernie Goldberg yeah. that O'Reilly used to have on all the time. He's like, oh, let me tell you about how terrible the mainstream media is. Steve, you're just one of those. You're just sour grapes. You're doing your own thing now. Now, now you're just throwing rocks at the media. I, I would say that I, I come at it from a place of love. You know, I mean, I, I write about CNN the most because I, it pains me the most because I loved CNN. I mean, I loved my three years I, I was at CNN. Again, I was there in, in 2013, not that long ago. Um, I really loved it. I worked, I, I worked closely with Jeff Zucker. I liked working with him too. Um, it, 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 I think we need a strong CNN, a strong New York Times. Um, and, and at the same time, like I, like I say, I, there's great work being done at these outlets. There's great journalists being done at these outlets, you know, that are at these outlets today. But they get so overshadowed by the, the reputation hits that their colleagues in some cases, you know, that they, that they often make, that, that that's what, that's what the, the lasting effect of them are. And so, so that's what it, it worries me. I, I don't want to destroy the media. I'm not one of these people that's like, burn it all down. You know, we, we just do it on our own. I mean, I think we can do it on our own. I think that, you know, you've proven that and others like you don't, we don't need the corporate gatekeepers necessarily. But I do think that in a perfect world, we have a strong institutional press because those are the people that in theory can get to the people in power and push them and be that thorn in the side that we need on behalf of us. Right. I mean, a, a lot of what we do is contingent on those people yeah. in the White House press briefing room asking those questions, right? Getting those getting those interviews, uh, these media institutions that have the resources to cover things around the world, to, you know, to be there in the in the bunkers of Ukraine and, you know, to eventually get inside China and to, you know, get time with the Ayatollah, right. et cetera. So we have a sense of what's going on. You know, it's ironic to me as we look at trust right now, Steve, the time when Americans most trusted the media, they had the fewest number of options. Right. There were three networks. And the most trusted man in America, by the way, that's sort of a myth, the whole Cronkite thing. That was a survey done by CBS that sort of <laughs> like they cooked a little bit. But like the most trusted man in America is Walter Cronkite. There's three channels on at night. You get your paper. You might have an afternoon paper. And that was the time when the vast majority of Americans trusted the media. Today, there's you. There's Megan. There's me. There's the Washington Post. There's CNN. There's Eli. There's tens of thousands of options out there and substacks it's and podcasts etc and yet we trust the media the least what what do you make of that i mean you would almost feel like it should be the opposite right yeah well i i think there's two reasons and first of all i think that um there when there were only three sources you know that that those places knew that they were responsible for trying to serve the widest audience possible. And, and they, they really tried to, I think, in a lot of ways. And I, I think even, again, you know, back in 15, 20 years ago, the business model was different. You wanted to reach as many people as you possibly could. And to do that, you can't alienate other people. So that, that was one of them. But the other reason is because I think because of the rise of independent media, the average consumer of the media is a much more discerning consumer. They, they understand the way things work better than they did before. And because of that, when you kind of get that peek behind the curtain, when you can kind of see what's really happening, you just inevitably, you know, will trust th those people less. I mean, to be honest, journalists themselves are putting it all out there on Twitter, you know, every day, uh, you know, treating it like it's their diary, but everyone can read it. And that's that that really can be a hit on on the reputation of these institutions as well. And so I think it's inevitable. I mean, I think when you when when people can kind of see the the veil being pulled down now. They can kind of see what's actually happening and, and start to draw their own conclusions. One final thing I want to get yeah. to was uh, the impact of partisan press along those lines, Steve. The the rise of the Fox News is. I mean, you talked about even twenty years ago, the uh, you know networks trying to be everything for everybody, right? And then you know, in a kind of sort of mainstream way, Fox sort of becomes one of the first examples of like, no, we we can we can narrow cast. Right. We have an audience. I mean, I remember the numbers, and this goes back to my time at Fox. But like the average Fox viewer, even 10 years ago, and I imagine it's no different now, was watching four hours a day of Fox News, wow. whereas the average CNN and MSNBC watcher is watching for like 12 minutes. <laughs> MSNBC was able to increase that when they go partisan, yeah. right? They, they, they go left as Fox went right. Then you sort of saw it with CNN in the Trump years and in those Zucker years of sort of being MSNBC 2, yep. right? Going left. Um, there, you can keep your audience better. What do you make, you know, especially as... Fox has taken on this focus now of um, with this most recent lawsuit and, you know, certainly is uh, talked about a lot, even by this White House, who, by the way, most of us need Joe Biden rejected a Super Bowl interview with them. Right? right. I'm not even giving you the time of day anymore. You guys, whereas Obama tried to embrace them, yeah. go toe to toe with O'Reilly. 
give me your sense of, of, of the impact as you've, you know, been researching this book and talking about the, the state of the press, what, what the rise of Fox has meant and, and partisan press writ large. What we've seen with, with places like a Fox and MSNBC is a real honesty in a lot of ways. And I, I know that, you know, I, I say this and the critics will say, well, then we know what we learned from the Dominion lawsuit and the text messages. I, I, it's the opposite of honesty. Yes, yeah. I, I get that. Um, but what I, I, one of the big takeaways for me, honestly, from the text messages was seeing the concern that people like Tucker Carlson and others had for their own audience getting spun this by Trump and really being mad at Trump over the spin that he was doing on these people that were believing it and also were Fox viewers and needing to tread lightly in order to essentially break the news to these to the to this audience that sorry like it's is not this is not true but to do so in a way that doesn't alienate your voter your your viewers and and not you know so it's it's a difficult dance there but i guess the honesty i would say is like what I find most pervasive and, and most problematic is places like a CNN during the 2017 to 2021, when they did turn into the MSNBC too, but they refused to say they did. You know, the, the, mm. the idea of not being intellectually honest about it, still claiming, even in the Don Lemon, Chris Cuomo years of 2018, 2019, saying those are news shows. Those are not opinion shows. That just just admit what you are. I, I, I think that there's the audience will actually, I think, be okay with understanding that this is my opinion. And I'm going to, I mean, look, by the time primetime comes around these days, no one's learning the news for the most part. So, so it's, it's a different business model. This is a take on it, it's a spin on it, but just be honest about it. And I do think that intellectual honesty is, is what's so great about independent sources. They don't claim this mantle of objectivity in some cases, or they're not claiming to not have any opinions. Um, I, I think that's where the, the corporate press these days goes wrong. And so I do think that you know something to, to praise the partisan press for from MSNBC to Fox is being at least honest about where they're coming from. Yeah, I think I think an, another outlet does a good job of that is uh, the Dispatch yeah. newsletter um, on, on the right, straightforward, but they're still approaching it sort of like, you know, old school reporters, facts first, but they're transparent about who they are and who their writers are, et cetera. Right. Um, so one of the themes we discussed here in this conversation was that reporters being honest about what they don't know and what they do know, and potentially their partisan bent and an agenda is important. Coming out of this book, as you know, you completed this book, um, asking for Steve's solution for it all. How do we get that trust level back up into the 40% range or the 50% range even? What did you hear from people inside the industry? And, and what did you assess that the traditional corporate media need to do in order to repair the current situation? Is it repairable? I think it is. I'm, I'm an optimist, uh, ultimately. Uh, I do, in the last chapter of the book, try to lay out some possible solutions um, that I think can help move the needle in some ways. It's funny you mentioned um, ombudsman and public editors as something that's gone away. I think that's one that could be could make a huge difference. You know, I think there's a reason why um, the people that, the, the outlets that have ombudsman internally, which there are very few these days, um, who, wait, who, who still does NPR technically does. Um, and I would also count people like, you know, Eric Wemple as someone who internally at the Washington post, he's a media columnist, but he will write about the Washington post. He's, he's got the, the latitude to do that. Um, uh, and, and so, 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 so what he will do and what the NPR person ostensibly would do would, if, if they mess something up, yeah, they'll, he'll call it out. I'll call it out from his own paper. Yes. And, and, and say, you know, and, and, and be honest about it. Um, but that's their job. And I, I would say actually putting an ombudsman like person internally at a lot of these large organizations will do wonders. They will be the public editor, the person who is on behalf of the public, a check on the, on the organization themselves. Um, I think that, that that's a good one. Another one I, I wrote about is just getting out of your traditional avenues for finding new talent. Um, I, I know it's hard, but you should not try to find only journalists who want to be journalists. Uh, you know, try to find people outside of the, the normal avenues that get to your, that, you know, get the resume on the table, come from the right journalism schools, know the right people. Um, because those are people a lot of times who I think will get into it for the wrong reasons these days. Um, you know, you can become a star, an influencer because of journalism, uh, build your brand through that. Um, but if you can find people that are not motivated by that factor, I think that, that can, they can start to do some good work. Um, and it would, it would help if they're outside of New York and DC. I think we've seen that one positive of the pandemic has been the idea that you can do your job in a lot of cases without being in these, these siloed newsrooms. Put people out into the field throughout the country, have them live there, not just kind of go into their diner. 
I think that can make a difference as well. And then one other last thing I would say is that I'm kind of threw this out there, but I don't think that the average journalist these days is listening to the bosses. And I don't think that's going to change. But what we have seen is the rise of unions at a lot of these news organizations. And I do think if your colleagues are telling you, hey, listen, you know, putting out your every thought on Twitter is going to kind of hurt you, it's going to kind of hurt us, that can actually make an impact. So I do wonder if the rise of unions might have a positive effect if they can actually say, listen, we want to keep jobs. The job mar- you know, market here is very tough. Like, Let's just kind of silence that, that, uh, that, that urge you have to put everything on Twitter and let's see if we can kind of get back to the work. You know, we always talked about uh, in newsrooms the sort of wall between the business and the editorial. And, and it's, I think a, a lot of people, it's, it's something new that they learn that like, well, you ran a bunch of Pfizer ads in your commercial break on the CBS Evening News. Like, well, why can I expect objective coverage of Pfizer? And I'm like, well, for the most part, some of these institutions do wall us off. Like, right. I didn't even know who was advertising. They deal with that. Yeah. I just cover the news. Obviously, there have been examples in the past at Disney and some other places where there is some pressure from the bosses on certain things. But now we live in an era where existentially these organizations are trying to survive. Business is key. Does that make this attempt to repair things even more challenging? It does. I, 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 yeah. The, the bigger these organizations get, the more complicated these are. You know, I, I talk about like structural polarization. I mean, the, the, bigger, the biggest organizations are only getting bigger and more complicated and, and more you know, interweaving and there's entertainment and there's news and there's you know, business side of the, And then the smaller outlets are, are essentially getting smaller and closer to the people. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that that's, that's a challenge as, as this goes on. Um, but I, I hope that the trust number, you know, the, at the core, I mean, if you want to get really in the weeds, like CNN needs to get a, a, you know, be able to tell cable outlets that they are very worthwhile. And it's not about the ratings. It's that, you know, when news happens, we, we're trusted and you need to have us on your cable provider and we're going to charge a premium for that. That's a case you, you can make without the, the ratings. It's just a case that's a, that's a trustworthiness you know, case that you make. So they need to actually improve that number in order to keep the business model stable. And I hope that a lot of these news organizations see that, that trust decline and say, that, let's get that right and, and find ways of doing it. Steve, I want to thank you for coming on. Thanks for your book. Good luck uh, with Uncover, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Hopefully, they will find the people again, Steve. For, you know, because I think I, I share with you, I always want to be a journalist. This is an important field for me. And I think of nothing more important, you know, to a democracy than a free press that um, is informing the citizens and questioning the powerful and giving voice to the voiceless and all the things that, you know, we wanted to get into. Right. We that brought us into this business. Well, I love what you're doing, Moshe. I'm great talking with you. Thanks, Steve. I want to thank Steve again for his time today. I'm going to link to his book in the show notes if you're interested in going deeper on this subject. Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People is available wherever you buy your books. Another reminder before you go to follow or subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can do that on your app right now. And review us. We really appreciate all the five-star reviews. It really helps the podcast continue to grow and reach new audiences. I will see everyone back here very soon.